Hello, it's Luke here, the Hemecast producer. Welcome to our first podcast of 2022. Before we dive into today's episode, I just wanted to take this moment to thank all of our listeners for tuning in throughout 2021. This was our first venture into the world of podcasting, and we're really pleased with the response we've had from the community, from healthcare professionals to community advocates. We've loved receiving your messages and tweets about how you were listening in, whether it was in the car or on the bus on the way into work or during a lunch break. We appreciate your time, we appreciate you tuning in, and hope you'll continue to do so this year. And if you have any ideas or requests on topics we can tackle throughout the year, get in touch, let us know. Whether you send us a tweet, an email, hello at hemnet.com, we'd love to hear from you. Anyway, I'll now hand it back to your resident Hemecast host, Dr. Kate Kerr. Hello and welcome to Hemecast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Simon Fletcher, who many of you will know. He's the research nurse in the Haemophilia Centre in Oxford and is doing a PhD into the impact of gene therapy on people with haemophilia. And he's going to talk about that with me now. If you had to do that two minutes in a lift conversation about what is exigency, could you tell me what it is? I suppose exigency really is what it says in the title. It, it's something that's important right now. We're hearing a lot in, certainly in the in healthcare press, in haemophilia about gene therapy. It seems to be this thing that has been promised for 20 years and now looks like it might be getting to a point where it's deliverable. And we've got all this exciting news about it, but actually we're not talking to the people who are going to, be the recipients of gene therapy. We're not listening to what they're actually saying. So that's really what exigency is all about. It's an exercise in listening. It's an exercise in sitting down and hearing what those who are going to be wanting to have gene therapy or not wanting to have gene therapy, listening to what they've got to say. And so how have you been doing that? In a world of COVID, that's been a, that's been an interesting test to do, really. We had planned to do it in the conventional way to have interviews, to have focus groups, to sit down with people face to face. But in the way that COVID has, it's changed everybody's plans. We've much more had to go to video conferencing platforms, Zoom or Microsoft Teams and that sort of thing. And we've actually done it in that way rather than doing it face to face just to protect everybody that's, that's involved. And actually, it's worked really well. I think we've gained... Uh, a view of people's lives that maybe we wouldn't have if we'd have done it in the traditional manner. Being invited into people's homes, albeit via a computer screen, but we've actually been invited into probably areas of their homes that we wouldn't have seen if we'd have gone in to do an interview. The traditional way would have been we go in there and we sit very nicely in, the, in a front room somewhere and we have our cups of tea and we have our chat and it's it, it, and it goes like that. But Actually, the the very fact that we've been removed by a computer screen has actually, I think, enabled people to feel that actually, though I'm in their space, I'm not I'm, I'm not in their space. It's an odd kind of, of dynamic, really, because not being there, I think they've felt that they've been freer to talk about things in ways that they possibly wouldn't have before because... I'm not in their space. Could you give an example of something that you've seen or heard there? We had, uh, I had one conversation with a couple and they were cooking their tea. 
They got back late from from work and they said, sorry, we are late. We are cooking, Etty. Do you mind if we hold the conversation while that's happening? And it was it was like having a dinner party. Only I wasn't on. I wasn't eating on my end. They were just cooking and eating and and having a glass of wine as it was the end of their day and they were they were quite happy to have a, a a chat with me about about the gene therapy that he'd gone through and what that difference it had made in his life and in his wife's life as well so that all sounds really terribly informal how mm-hmm. have you made sure that you've had proper process and rigor in your research as with all, as with all research, everything that we've done has had to have been reviewed by uh, REC, the research ethics committees, and by the uh, the health research authority in the UK. So, actually, everything that we've done, or the whole way through, the whole process has been reviewed by them, and they are aware of what we're doing and what we've been looking for, and just how that how we were going to go about that but we've always made sure that throughout that the the conversations that we've had we've used uh, an interview schedule throughout the whole process so that actually we're though we're not asking the same questions of everybody we're asking similar questions but we're allowing them to have a bit more freedom in the sense that we're, we're not looking for answers to the same questions from everybody we're looking for the answers that they have to a few general questions and then allowing the conversation to take its own its own form its own way to try and see just what what their their experience of gene therapy has been but we've also been able to bring in elements from uh previous conversations that we've had with other interviewees and we've actually said this is what some other people have said do you find a similar thing or is it actually been different for you so it, it's been cross-referencing and sort of triangulation, that sort of thing, to try and find those elements that have been discussed elsewhere to see whether they actually are applicable across all of the people that we've uh, had interviews with. I guess both of you would probably um, be able to do this and fill in the audience that are listening at the moment. So you spoke to a lot of people and it was these very in-depth interviews and conversations that you've been having with a wide variety of people. And I know HemeNet and both of you are strong supporters of qualitative research methods within haemophilia and Mm -hmm. that it's becoming extremely important, especially in the context of things like gene therapy. I know the method, grounded theory. When Mm -hmm. I first heard it, it was very new to me. And I think it's a really interesting way of doing this type of research. And I just thought it'd be helpful for our listeners if you'd expand on how you've used that research method to conduct the exigency study. Grand theory has been used in qualitative research for about 40 or 50 years now. It's one of the main types of qualitative research that is is actually carried out, especially by nurses and by healthcare professionals. And, And what the idea is that you interview people and that you interview more people and you interview more people and you're listening for themes and and ideas that come from these interviews so basically you do one interview then you sit down and you analyze that interview and you look for themes that are coming out of that 
was that person what what were they talking about was it did it have to do with their original was the things about their original diagnosis were there things around how that diagnosis impacted on their life as they got older how their hemophilia actually affected them as they grow up and how they identify as a person as a person with hemophilia and what that meant to their decision to go for gene therapy so to all of these different themes that are coming out all of these different ideas and then you do another interview and you listen to what that person has to say and then you begin to analyze that again and say okay we're getting themes that have been mentioned in this first interview but actually there are things coming up that that haven't been mentioned in this first one and then you do another interview and you do the same process again and another interview and you keep going until actually what you're getting from the the people towards the end is actually everything that's being mentioned in these interviews has been mentioned before so you actually get to a point where what it's what we call data saturation it's where to say that you've heard everything is not quite <laughs> it then so you're not interested in it any longer but actually what's coming out of the interviews has been mentioned by so many people and by everybody and you can actually think that actually we have reached a point now where there's we're getting no new information and that's the point where we stop and we say okay not we've not heard everything that is possible to hear but from this group of patients we're hearing the same things and they're saying this and this some are saying something slightly different some are saying something slightly different here but actually we're getting that we've got to a point now where we can say that these are the dominant themes that are coming out these are the things that are important to the majority of the people that we've spoken to and it's a nice iterative process you you, you're going through it and you're doing it and, and and you're listening to what's been said and you're reading what people have been saying and you're actually taking it in and and thinking or I found myself thinking, actually, there are so many things that I'm hearing here that I would never have had the opportunity to hear at any other point. And to be able to to put that down and and enable other people to to have that experience as well is 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 really rewarding. I think it's really interesting is what you've just described there, Simon. It's a really long process mm-hmm. from first patient to last patient. And I think there's sometimes a bit of a belief that qualitative research is a bit easy. It's a bit sit down, have a chat. It's all a bit touchy feely. And it's not as good as proper research, which is qualitative, where their methods are to use SAS or SPSSR or whichever tool they want to use. The difficulty then, I think, at the end of all of that, and you've just described beautifully how you've got that really rich data and you've managed to pull all those themes together. Mm. How do you get it published? It is not as difficult as you think it might be but it is sometimes more difficult than you think it might be yes quantitative research is the dominant paradigm at the moment it's what the it's the thing that everybody is looking for but actually it doesn't tell you everything it can tell you for the sake of argument that if you've used a a quality of life assessment tool within the, the study that yes at their baseline their quality of life was this at the end of their st- the study their quality of life was this there's an improvement but what what does that mean what does that actually mean what does that improvement mean how has that how have their lives improved and that's what qualitative work can show you can show you it can really show you just exactly how somebody's or a group of patients lives have been 
changed by the experience of going through gene therapy for the sake, in, in, in the sake of an argument for excellency. But it just tells you in exactly what way their lives have been impacted. And it actually allows you to then to think about those things that you need to put into place for people who are going through gene therapy in the future. It's actually one thing to say, okay, somebody has gene therapy, they go through the, the whole process at the end of it, their quality of life is better. But what does that process involve? How has that person who's gone through gene therapy, how have they experienced that period of time? What has been good? What has been bad? What do they think was missing from that? Or, or, or what do they think that would have helped that whole experience? If we don't know, if we're missing that whole bit of information, how can we as healthcare professionals, how can we as uh, people who work in haemophilia treatment centers actually start planning to put into place those things that are necessary to help people through that process. We can't. And that's what that that's why I think qualitative research is so important. It's not an either or. It's not a one or the other. It's both. You have to have quantitative and you have to have qualitative. I think qualitative researchers are more aware of that need to have both than quantitative researchers are. They're more, we have to have stats, we have to have facts, we have to have numbers. Whereas they're, and they see less importance in the, as you described it, the touchy feel of, of qualitative research. So me and Kate were saying earlier today that we need to find a better phrase than touchy-feely because <laughs> it, of course, is more than that, but that's just what it's become colloquially to us. But it mm -hmm. reminds me of the conversation Kate and I were having with Declan on the last episode we recorded, and we were talking about these very minor day-to-day -day things that we'd heard anecdotally about people who've had gene therapy reporting. And one of the big points Declan brought up was it's this unquantifiable stuff that's mm. going on that we're finding very hard to document and in a way this qualitative research especially what's being done here with the exigency study mm. feels a pretty good way of actually somewhat quantifying those mm. sorts of elements of gene mm. therapy and it's just yeah tricky to try and communicate that to the masses when you've got a lot of people out there that are very numbers focused and mm -hmm. even when it comes to the the dreaded quality of life surveys that patients are often asked to fill out over and over again mm -hmm. you wonder okay so what does this data actually mean that they're collecting mm -hmm. what you know what's behind those numbers that improvement of this score to that score a couple of months later and what happened in between because mm -hmm. as you say that process is really important yeah I think that that whole element of what's in between is the really is really where the important things lie, and we just have to be able to to get those stories out. And I think people actually respond better to stories. We've spoken to or have spoken to some people, and they've said that actually I want to hear what people have experienced going through it before I can get to a point where I can say actually, okay, I now understand what I have, what is involved in it, what it may mean to me. 
I, I, I can now, I've now reached a point where actually that's something that I can think about. And, and it's important to hear the good and the bad. I think often we hear in the press had haemophilia, they had bleeds, they had terrible knee, they had terrible arthropathies to their knees and their ankles. They had gene therapy. They haven't had a bleed since. And you get this very heightened picture of what gene therapy is, but there's so much that goes on in between that actually is great, but sometimes there's stuff that goes on there that isn't so good. And and actually for the person that's gone through that to be able to say, actually, this is great, but this is this hasn't been good. To be able to actually put voice to that is, I think, really helpful. And it's really helpful to those that are thinking about it so that they can actually think, okay, I now know, I now fully understand or more fully understand what I've, what is expected of me. I can then, I, I can then think, yes, I want to go for that. No, actually, it's not for me at this point in time. You and didn't. that's also been very important is talking to people who actually don't want gene therapy to understand why they don't want gene therapy, to understand about what the, the what about the process that actually means that they don't want to take part in it or what about their identity that is so important to them that actually they don't want to lose that sense of identity that they have as a person with haemophilia. And it's not the same for everybody, but it's, as I say, it's just important to get all these stories out so that everybody has as much of an idea of as it's possible to have. So I know other people are doing similar things in that they're talking to people who've had gene therapy and what is life like for you now. You chose to interview people who had gene therapy with a significant other family member if they wanted to, so some wives, mm. girlfriends, brothers, whoever's. Why did you decide to do that? I don't know which poet it was that said that no man is an island. I think it was John Donne, wasn't it? Possibly. Yeah. I'm not a poet. Not. <laughs> uh, poetry is, is the one form of, of English that eludes me most of the time, but it's actually true. No man is an island. No person is a it is a person truly on their own. They are a member of a family. And when a, a, a person decides to go for something as uh, life-changing or possibly life-changing as gene therapy, the whole family is involved. And it's important to, to listen to other members of the family to understand what they understood of the whole process, what they, um, did they feel prepared for it? because we've prepared the person going for the gene therapy as, as much as we possibly can, but we don't prepare the family. They're as much signed up to the process as the person themselves. And everything that the individual goes through, the family go through as well. The wife, the children, the parent, the, you know, the, the, the parents are involved because actually that's the thing of, that's quite interesting is that we... I, I talked to one person and he said when he went for his gene therapy, his mom and dad were there. They wanted to be there because they brought him into the world and were there at his diagnosis of haemophilia and they wanted to be there when his haemophilia was taken away from him. And I thought that was amazing. And that really did knock me for six, really, is that whole thought of actually it's important that we actually hear what family members have got to say and it's something that that as you say nobody else has has been doing and, and it just felt that it was as equally important to hear 
their voice in this whole thing. And given that everybody you've interviewed so far has been in a clinical trial, how do we support people going into commercial clinical care gene therapy rather than clinical trial gene therapy? It's difficult at the moment because actually we don't know what that looks like. We only know what gene therapy looks like within the context of a clinical trial. And what will be asked of somebody when it becomes a commercially available product may be very different from what's being asked of people within clinical trials because of the regulatory requirements of clinical trials. There is much more data that's required. It may be that some of those requirements are not necessarily as important when it comes to to be licensed. But I, I still feel that there's going to need to be quite a degree of follow-up involved in that whole process, certainly in the first six months, because it's no secret that actually you need to keep an eye on what's going on with the liver. When If there's a, a, a raise in liver enzymes, then the gene therapy itself, the effectiveness of the gene therapy and the expression of the factor can drop. So we will always want to keep an eye on what's going on with people's livers in those first few months of, uh, of the process. That's going to need to be looked at. And that's one thing that has to be looked at within what you can offer as a treatment center, because if you've got one person in the study, they may be coming in twice a week for the sake of argument. And then if you have two people in the study, you've got two people coming in twice a week, three people twice a week. It, it grows exponentially. It's a word of the century at the moment, but it, the, the, the amount of work grows exponentially. And I don't think really that many centers are actually ready for that at the moment. And they, we all need to be thinking about that now before it actually starts. And we need to be thinking about the psychological support as well. That's something that we found in the study itself is the fact that actually people's identity sometimes doesn't change. They're the same person they were right at the start and they're the same person right at the end. But actually some people go through this period of transition where they're not quite sure of not so much who they are, but how their life has changed and how dramatic that change has been. They thought it would be easy. And I think sometimes healthcare professionals think, actually, we've got somebody who's got haemophilia, they come in, they have gene therapy, they go away, life's great. Life might not be great. And actually, the ability to talk to somebody, not necessarily psychological support, but the ability to, to actually sit down and talk these things through with somebody, I think is going to be important. And that's something that centres have to look at is actually some people who are going through it might need more time than just 10 minutes to take bloods. And might that somebody be another person with haemophilia who's had gene therapy? So do you think there's some reason, necessity purpose in having some peer-to-peer -peer support with some kind of gene therapy expert haemophilia patient x patient <laughs> <laughs> i think anybody that has gone through it is going to immediately understand what another person what another person is going through it's very much a, a peer support uh, model that's used in in oncology where you have people who a large support group of people who are going through chemotherapy and and they have access to one another and they talk online and they have this ability to just 
just talk with one another and they all immediately understand what's going on with one another. And I think that could be an important model that could be that could be used in this situation where people who've gone through gene therapy are actually available to to people who are going through it or thinking about going through it. It's the, it's this story. It's this whole essence of actually hearing what other people have been through and saying what you've been through that actually I think makes the real difference or can make the real difference and I would hope would make a real difference going forward. The, the more that's been done with exigency as it's gone on, just seeing now the potential it has to aid in the whole shared decision-making process is, is going to be very significant because as far as I know, to my knowledge, nothing like this on this scale had been done with gene therapy recipients before i guess because there wasn't really that many of them but i guess that was a whole other part of the challenge wasn't it trying to get out and find these people yeah we've been very lucky in the in that i've been able to get access to a number of of people who've been through it and you get this peer-to-peer snowball effect somebody somebody else who's had it and has, has gone to them and said I've done this. Would you would you be willing to have a chat as well to this person? So it's been very good in that respect. And we've been very lucky in the UK in that we have had a number of studies that have, have been run in the UK and we have a larger group of people who've gone through gene therapy. So actually we've had the ability to do a study of this size, of this magnitude, which maybe other other countries haven't been able to do they've done it on a more limited scale we've had studies come out of germany and some smaller ones out of the uk as well but it's only been a a small handful of, of people and that's nice because that tells us something about what's going on certainly in the case of germany what's going on in germany and seeing that actually some of the things that they were talking about actually are are translate into what's happening in the UK. So even small studies are important and but but the one that we've been able to do here actually has been has been it's still small numbers. It's 20 interviews of people who've had gene therapy. That's still in the grand scheme of things a a, a small number, but it's actually a huge number in the sense that it's nearly half of those that have had gene therapy in the UK. And it's been a real privilege to actually sit down and listen to their stories. I think that's a really lovely place to stop. So thank you very much, Simon. Thank you. Great. We're we're always quite good with our guests finishing a sentence and then it being like, oh, that's the perfect ending. (laughs) (laughs) No, no directing necessary at all. Simon, thank you very much for sharing your experience as a qualitative researcher. Welcome to the team and the findings that you've had so far from exigency. I know that you are still publishing and still uh, finalising your data and we will link your publications to this HemeCast and I hope that everybody goes to read them because what you're finding is really important for the future of haemophilia and haemophilia nursing. As Kate mentioned, I'll be linking all of the relevant publications around the exigency study in the episode description so be sure to check those out to find out a bit more about what's been done in this really, really important and interesting project into the experiences of gene therapy. Thank you for tuning in and listening today. Finally, a thank you to our sponsors, CSL Bearing, Chugai, Roche, Sobi and Takeda, who make HemeCast possible.